Our story continues in the Outlands, a tucked away corner of the Red Kingdom that touches every plane in existence. It is a place of lost history, of ancient magic, and diverse cultures touched by the gods themselves. Five years ago, the Outlands Exploratory Company stopped the Faerun, a hive of reality-eating terrors, from the furthest planes of existence, from escaping their prison deep within the bowels of the Outlands. Uniting the peoples and the factions of the Outlands under one banner, the apocalypse foretold in the Summer of Blood was thwarted, and peace came to the Outlands once again. Now, the benevolent Red Dragon Ashmaker rules over the Outlands as regent for the Red Kingdom with his elven wife, while the Outwatch organization protects the Outlands in secret from threats near and far. Dangers old and new are rising in the shadows of the Outlands, threatening the peace that the brave adventurers of the Outlands Exploratory Company bled and died for. A new generation of heroes must rise up to face these threats head-on. They seek to protect the Outlands, uncover its secrets, and battle the powerful foes who threaten the region all while trying to stay alive. theme song is to do a parody of it yet <laughs> all right well let's uh let's dive into things oh we're already recording well i know it was more of a hypothetical anyways don't you mean a figurative same difference <laughs> welcome Badger. back to the dang it luke Welcome back to the Outlands, everyone. Uh, this is Season 2 of Tales from the Outlands, a unique Dungeons & Dragons recap podcast. I am one of your hosts, Christian Hoffer, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and producer, Luke Herr. Hello, Christian. Hello, Luke. It's been a while since we recorded one of these. It has. It's been a season it has been. It's been a, a a full season. A season of change. A season of consequence. A season of... Hope. I can't think of a third very important sounding thing. Anyways, this is Tales from the Outlands. And this is a unique style of D&D campaign. If this is your first episode, thank you for listening. Uh, this is a good episode to jump into because this is the first... Uh, this is the first episode that we will be talking about the new Outlands campaigns. Uh, to kind of dive into what exactly this podcast is, uh, this is a little bit of a unique D&D podcast. Most D&D podcasts fall into one of two categories. We have your Let's Play D&D podcasts, uh, in which you listen to people play Dungeons & Dragons. Um, we are not one of those podcasts. If you like one of those podcasts, uh, Luke participates in a number of those podcasts and can direct you to several high-quality ones, but we're not one of those. The other type of D&D podcast is your D&D news, your D&D discussion podcast, in which the co-hosts talk about uh, the, 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 the metagame of Dungeons & Dragons. They talk about building the right D&D campaign. They talk about the breaking news of Dungeons & Dragons. We're not one of those campaigns either. We're the secret third option of D&D campaigns. Uh, last year, uh, back in the height of the pandemic, uh, I uh, started a D&D campaign uh, set in the Outlands, hence the name Tales from the Outlands, and it featured a total of 18 different players. Uh, it was uh, a campaign style inspired by the West Marches, 
um, but with a few key differences. Uh, we uh, The groups were split into... Uh, uh, we had three groups. We played weekly. And uh, each week, they would pick a mission and go out and do it and return back to camp. And those missions kind of unveiled a a wider tapestry, a, a larger plot that they, they put together piece by piece. Uh, it had its advantages and its disadvantages. And then we all got vaccinated. And so meeting weekly became a harder thing to do. So we ended that campaign. It was very sad. Some players died. Uh, well, not the player, the characters died. Um, evil was vanquished. The summer of blood was averted. And then we took a bit, a bit of a break. And uh, then we started things up again. So for this season of The Outlands, uh, things are a bit different now. Uh, instead of running one D&D campaign with uh, a total of 18 people, we are now running three separate D&D campaigns, each of which is set in The Outlands. The campaigns themselves don't have the crossover as the old campaign did. Uh, they won't be running into the same threats, and what one campaign does won't have as much of an impact on the others. Now, there will still be some. They, they still exist in the world. If one campaign does something super consequential, there will be fallout that might be felt in those other campaigns. But the idea is, at least at first, is to keep them a little bit more siloed. Um, and to let those campaigns and let those stories kind of grow organically and get those players and their characters really in, invested and rooted deep in the world of the Outlands. So what does that mean for our podcast? Well, oh, my, my look of confusion because we're doing video casting was just because you asked your own question, Christian. I know, I know. Well, okay, how about this, Luke? You ask me, so what does that mean for our podcast? And then I'll answer. Hey, Christian, what does that mean for our podcast? I'm glad you asked that very specific and not at all scripted question, Luke. That means that this podcast, the the format is going to change up a little bit. Instead of trying to talk about all three campaigns every episode, which... I felt like, well, it was a lot of fun for me talking to Luke about that and talking to the guests that we will eventually bring back onto the show. I don't think that our listeners, the, the, the legion of listeners that we have on this podcast, could quite keep up on that. And also, we jumped in right into the middle of a story. So the, pod, the listeners were always kind of trying to catch up. Sorry about that, Jeff. <laughs> So this time around, we're going to focus on one campaign every episode. We have three campaigns, so there's still a lot of ground to cover. Uh, we're only playing once every other week, so there shouldn't be as much um, uh, of story to catch up on when we come back around to the various campaigns. So this format should make it easier for you to keep up on our D&D campaign and also, you know, learn a little bit uh, about the world, kind of get a little bit more invested, maybe. We're going to try to focus more on the characters. Uh, there's more room for that, both in how we're doing this campaign layout and also how we're doing this podcast as well. But Christian, who are you beyond the dungeon master of this podcast? Oh, that's a that's a very good question. Uh, I I suppose we should talk about why you would want to listen to this podcast. Why why listen to two random dudes from Ohio talk about their D and D campaign on a regular basis? Well, one because we're fun and entertaining to listen to. Uh, secondly, I uh, Christian Hoffer uh, actually write professionally about tabletop games for ComicBook.com, which is a CBS owned website. Um, I've been basically a dungeon master exclusively since I started playing tabletop games, which was uh, five or six years ago. Um, and thanks to the pandemic, basically robbing me of anything else to do, 
I've had time to come up with a pretty some pretty elaborate D&D campaigns build up a pretty unique world um, that weaves together both uh, existing D&D lore with unique stories and unique takes on uh, traditional and non-traditional fantasy elements. Uh, as for Luke, well, I'll let Luke speak for himself. I've been a player for, I was realizing, like, almost probably over 15 years now, but I've also been a uh, dungeon master. I've done several actual play shows or live play shows. Um, but for me, this has been a big return to getting to play a character or multiple characters because they die and it's it's been an enjoyable experiment to return to assuming characters as opposed to when you're gming and you're having to balance a lot of entities inside you to try and blend together this cosmic gumbo that is uh that is the challenge of being a good dungeon master or a good game master mm-hmm. um so, since this is the first episode of the new season of Tales from the Outlands, we decided that we would focus on Luke's campaign, uh, which we are, for the time being, calling the Ravenloft Route. Uh, are we? We're, we're calling it the Suicide Squad. I mean, it is the Suicide Squad, but we're not allowed to say that because uh, Warner Brothers will come after us and you know, make us put weasel in it or something like that. So we're going to call it the Ravenloft route officially. Um, but, you know, uh, as Luke suggested, it is a very uh, different take on Ravenloft and also of what a D&D campaign can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give you the high level uh, breakdown of it, uh, our... Uh, Sunday campaign, which Luke and five other players participate in, uh, is a high-stakes series of missions uh, that takes the players uh, through the various domains of dread uh, found in Ravenloft, the iconic D&D campaign setting uh, originally created by Tracy and Laura Hickman. Um, Our version of Ravenloft is a bit different. Uh, It is inspired in part by what Wizards of the Coast published in Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which was the new campaign setting guide that came out earlier this year. I believe it came out in May of 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, So that really reinvented Ravenloft away from when Ravenloft was originally created. It was a series of gothic horror-style subdomains, uh, each of which were loosely inspired by uh, either some sort of famous horror tale or loosely, or not loosely, uh, kind of closely followed some uh, story trope uh, or story type uh, from a very particular kind of horror. Wizards of the Coast... Uh, with Van Richten's guide, kind of blew that up and turned that idea on its head. Instead, now each of the domains represent a different kind of horror theme, whether that is zombie horror, whether that is cosmic horror, whether that is vampire horror. Body horror. Body horror. Uh, each, Each type of horror is kind of represented as a different one of these domains. And some were really fleshed out, some were just teased at, and we are going to go on a trip through multiple of these Ravenloft domains. Um, and we'll we'll dive into the reasons why. Well, in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as basically the, the, the concept when when I sat down and I came up with this this campaign idea was really the Suicide Squad meets Ravenloft. Now that does not necessarily mean that our players will be churning through characters like they did, uh, like the characters in the Suicide Squad, either the the most recent movie by James Gunn, or you know the classic comics, uh, spe- specifically by John Ostrander. Um, 
you know, that, that doesn't mean that we're going to see a high body count here. But the idea of it is basically a bunch of unwilling uh, adventurers kind of get conscripted to go on this mission that they wouldn't otherwise go. And it basically becomes as much about the mission as it is for them trying to survive. Um, and I think so far, this group of players has really responded to that well. Um, some have leaned in a little bit more than others, but we're four sessions in, and I think that everyone is kind of getting comfortable with the campaign concept. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have a problem in the Outlands, if no one else can help, and if you can find them, maybe you can hire the Suicide Squad. I, I, I don't think that is the, uh, the actual catchphrase that the Suicide Squad uses, but um, yeah. Anyways, so this the the Ravenloft group consists of six players, uh, one of which is Luke. Luke, why don't you tell us a little bit about your character? Uh, yeah, so I am playing Noak Streamrunner, who is a barrier bard. Barriers are sort of goat slash sheep centaurs uh, from the uh, outer ring. Uh, they're typically chaotic good. Uh, and Noke just sort of washed ashore. Uh, he is also a member of a group called the Aethar, who believe that while gods might be very powerful, they're not necessarily all powerful. And uh, that they're also just not gods, right? Well, they're not the god. They're not the creator of everything, which... I think is a reasonable thing to say since you can go out to the astral realm and see, oh, look at all these dead gods. That's fair. That's fair. But it's definitely a ballsy thing to say when you are the only Aethar out in a region where there are living gods walking around. Yes, including, you know, former player characters that are still involved in the campaign. Um, and... The other interesting thing about Noke is that he claims to come from the Outlands, but not the Outlands that we know of. Uh, yeah, he comes from the classic Planescape Outlands, and this was inspired by me just reading about the Outlands on websites and then just being like, oh, I knew everything. And then realizing how little I knew after doing a podcast interview about it and then quickly falling into the hole of, I'm going to try and read everything that I can about the Planescape setting. And so he knows a lot, but also there is a lot that he doesn't know. Our Outlands, the Outlands that, you know, is the focus of Tales from the Outlands, was inspired by the Planescape campaign setting, but it is its own entity in its own region. And uh, there may be some inconsistencies between what Noke thinks he knows and, uh, about the, the Great Wheel of Plains and what actually goes on there. But it makes for a lot of fun lore dumps that are like usually like 75 to 80 percent correct yeah so noke is joined uh by five other characters and we're just going to run them down really quickly um before we dive into the adventure just because one of the things i felt that the first season we didn't do the best job of is while we had a lot of the players on and we got great spotlights on the characters then uh, we would kind of talk around a lot of the characters because it was very, like, plot-focused. And I feel like with these campaigns and with Dungeons & Dragons in general, a big part of, like, wanting to listen to these stories about different D&D campaigns and different D&D sessions is the, the you know, the players and the characters themselves. And we also ultimately only had about, like, eight of the uh, like 18 players come on the show for various reasons. Yeah. Well, uh, recording on Thursday nights doesn't always work for somebody. We have a couple of people who work nights 
Mm. And, you know, some people don't like doing podcasts, which is a-okay. Anyways, joining Noke uh, are, are five other uh, characters, each with their own circumstances for being in the Outlands, uh, some of which we don't know too much about. Yeah. Uh, for instance, we have Isaac, who is a void wizard. Now, uh, he, he actually uses void magic that we teased a little bit in uh, the first Outlands campaign, and he actually is using a, uh, a entire subclass that's dedicated to that type of magic. Isaac is a little bit scatterbrained, and he seems to know things that he shouldn't while also being delightfully naive in other ways. And he's played by uh, Ken, who we've had on uh, the first season of uh, Tales from the Outlands. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, he kind of keeps to himself hasn't really revealed too much about his past and we'll we'll find I'm sure we'll find out more about Isaac and his circumstances later. Uh then we have Mike Bartlett returning to play Drulinor, a Air Genasi Echo Fighter Himbo, uh who is also a fan of the uh Outland Exploratory Company Heroes and has this very overly whitewashed glorified view of all of them and uh he comes from the uh elemental plane of air and uh he's kind of seeing the real world for the first time his uh mike described his character as um a college freshman taking his break year which i feel is very accurate um in addition to Mike's character, um, we also have James Moore returning um, as Shasta McNasty. Uh, Shasta McNasty is a lizard folk warlock um, who I forget exactly what the subclass is, but I believe it's a deep one warlock. Yeah. Um, Shasta, he's an interesting character, uh, believes in fashioning uh, weapons and armor out of the bones of his enemies. And. Uh, is not afraid to uh, eat his enemies if given the chance. And he's also kind of proselytizing his uh, warlockness of the uh, great one that will eat everything. Uh, That is not the name, but I'm blanking on the name. Uh, His patron is known only as the Chained One. That's right. Then we have Fleek, played by Jason Murray the Human correct? Yep. Yep. Uh, played by Jason Murray the Human. Uh, Fleek is one of the Unjanath elves. So part of the only remaining Unjanath who uh, he is long lived is familiar with the Outlands. He is a Circle of Stars druid and he's kind of quiet so far. I think he's trying to piece together some stuff. Yeah. Uh, now, one little bit of backstory that we learned about Sleek is that he actually was in the Feywild during the Feywild's collapse. Prior to Campaign 1, uh, the Feywild had been taken over by a group known as the Shadow Court, uh, which was a hive of mind flayers who managed to conquer the Feywild and uh, twist that very pliable realm uh, into their into uh, an image more of their liking. What the Shadow Court wanted with the Feywild and what their ultimate goal is remains wrapped in mystery, and they are one of the few lingering plots that uh, has continued from Campaign 1 into the present day. So the last player in our campaign, or the last player character in our campaign, uh, doesn't actually hail from the Outlands, nor did she start campaign with the rest of the party. Uh, this is Nara Drexion, played by Rachel. Uh, Nara is a Drake Warden, uh, which is a uh, currently in playtest class uh, that will be formally introduced in uh, Fizban's Treasury of Dragons, a D&D rulebook that will be coming out in October. Um, and Nara uh, joined the party during their first mission. She doesn't speak, period. Uh, she can speak She chooses not to, though, instead opting to use telepathy uh, to speak to her her teammates and also the people that she trusts. 
Um, she seems to have some sort of um, haunted history that she hasn't really gotten into. Uh, notably, she uh, doesn't seem to sleep very much, if at all. And that is uh, one of the interesting things about her character. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you mentioned how uh, Nara wasn't part of the party because the other members had a uh, interesting coming together, which is uh, the five of us were arrested. Yes. So when we started this campaign, when we were sitting down to plan out the campaign, everyone came to me with their character ideas. And then about a week before the campaign started, I told them, with the exception of Rachel, who we had a different hook in mind for her, Tell me how your character got arrested and found themselves in jail. And that is where our story starts. So, five members of this party uh, were total and complete strangers before they found themselves in the same jail cell in the newly formed city of New Untovalara, which is located on the um, Vermilion Beaches it is sitting in the midst of the ruins of this ancient Unjanath city uh, with a gate to the elemental plane towering above it. And it's also one of the homes of the Outwatch, this uh, organization dedicated to protecting the Outlands from threats both near and far. Our five party members are then recruited by Artis Ellendale, the head of Outwatch and the former leader of the Outlands Exploratory Company. And basically given a choice. They can either be kicked out of the Outlands, sent into the middle of the ocean with a boat and a week's worth of rations, and told, you can never come here again. Or they can assist artists with a uh, reconnaissance mission, a, a potentially dangerous mission, but a mission of great importance and necessity. A Also a mission in which... The Outwatch has already lost some good people. It wasn't really a hard choice to make. The mission was, in the Outlands, there is a region known as the Haunted Forest, an area where strange dead creatures lurk. Uh, it's an area that is corrupted by the presence of the Feyrim, not too far away. The Feyrim or the Feywild? No, the Feyrim, the, the, the bad guys from Campaign 1. Uh, so the the sidebar, uh, the Feyrim are currently, you know, are still remain trapped in this place known as the Pit of the Feyrim. Um, and it is located on top of this uh, giant plateau in the northern part of the Outlands. And uh, the Feyrim, you know, their, their just presence in that plateau has corrupted everything surrounding it and has turned the haunted, you know, turned what was once a lush forest into the haunted forest. Uh, so the haunted forest is already this very dangerous place, but recently a beloved member of the Outwatch has gone missing. This member being Dr. Worm, a uh, player character from our first campaign played by James Moore. Dr. Worm acted erratically before he disappeared and he wandered into the haunted forest, and shortly after he vanished, a strange mist rolled into the haunted forest. Now, Dr. Worm is privy to many of the Outwatch's greatest secrets, and he is one of their most capable adventurers. And so, Artis sent a full scouting team to go and find Dr. Worm and find out what was wrong with him. As they entered the mists, that scouting team also vanished without a trace. Now, the Outwatch, over the last five years, they know a thing or two about planes travel and the convergence of the planes that regularly occur within the Outlands. And while they're instruments don't indicate that a convergence of the planes has occurred in the haunted forest they are getting some sort of strange reading something is not right here 
And so Artis needs to figure that out. He doesn't want to lose more people. He's already lost, you know, at least a half dozen or so people to these strange mists. And he can't really afford to lose any more of his veteran adventurers. And so when a bunch of level three uh, player characters get locked up in his jail, he sees an opportunity. And the players, they don't particularly want to get kicked out of the Outlands. Now, before the party is sent into these strange mists, they're given a couple of things to help them. The first thing that they are given is each member is given a bracelet. It's a plain-looking bracelet, leather with a little bit of metal on it. And the bracelets have a very specific purpose, and that purpose is, is to prevent a party member from trying to run away or from, you know, a party member trying to go AWOL. If a party member or party members leave the bulk of the group and wander more than about a half mile or so away from the rest of the party, they will be automatically teleported to where the rest of the group is. As a younger brother who had to play second player in a lot of video games, I know that feeling very well. It is exactly that sort of uh, context. Uh, The other thing that they are given is a journal, and this actually allows the players to uh, get in touch with, uh, you know, they can use the journal and write things down in it, and whatever they write down in it will appear in a matching journal uh, in the hands. um, Initially, it was in the hand, the matching journal was in the hands of a NPC known as Frosteth Umbar, who is um, another NPC from Campaign 1. But eventually the journal makes it makes its way into Artis Ellendale's hands instead. So they have a way to communicate what they see and what they're facing to artists, no matter where they are. And this form of communication even works on different planes. It is also something that Nilk immediately just signs up to handle. Yes, yeah, that was uh, one of Noak's main uh, responsibilities over this first and second mission, I suppose. Yeah, Noak is the face of the party, or at least the mouth of the party. I I would give you the mouth of the party, yes. Uh, (laughs) uh, So, Luke, what happened when you and your friends entered the mists? So we immediately found ourselves beset by zombies and uh, we're also joined uh, in this situation by Nara. So we all headed into Gralic House, which was this dilapidated manor that had been made to withstand zombie attacks by some unknown force. And there was also a lot of references to Barum Barum who was the Thunderhoof, one of the heralds of the Faerim, who was a recurring enemy back in the first campaign. And while we had retreated, uh, that was when we ran into Nailhammer, one of the Outwatch scouts, as well as Argentia Yallow, who was a knight from the Order of the Talents. And we also found some other Interesting things like a map that was quite old showing a sort of lost section of the Red Kingdom, uh, which was known as Falcovnia. And without a lot of uh, better leads, Argencia told us that she had information about Worm that she would share if we would help her to close the Well of Bones which is one of the many places where the undead rise from in Valkovnia. And to go and do that, we would first need to fight the Herd of the Damned, a group of centaur skeletons and undead. And so the party split up with Noak and Nara going in to close the gates uh, with the promise that, oh yeah, you, you you close the main gate and then you have enough time to get out before the second gate closes as well. And that did not happen. No, 
Yeah, uh, the party was doing a great job distracting. Nokanara got in, pulled the levers, and then Argencia just started booking it away. Yeah, Argencia, she seemed shifty from the outset. When the players first met her, she was actually beating the snot out of Nail. Uh, because she suspected Nail of being a deserter or an outsider and basically was trying to torture him to get information. She did not make a good first impression on the party, and she immediately recruited them into this, like, Well of Bones mission, and she... And I'm kind of surprised that the party didn't ask more questions about this. Um, You know... There were no questions like, well, why isn't the Well of Bones closed regularly? Why are you recruiting a bunch of people you've never met before to do it? Um, um, in our defense, we had already been recruited by someone we'd never met before to go on a similar, potentially suicidal mission. That's true. That, that I'm not arguing that. There's also, you know, the other thing that kind of cracked me up about it, I think only one person did an insight check. And rolled like a six. Mm-hmm. So, um, not a lot of questioning of this very shady NPC. Um, and the second that the Well of Bones closed, uh, Argencia, who is a you know a, a full knight, um, and she was in the middle of this like epic battle against against a mummy centaur known as Tramplos. Um, yeah, she she got out of there, just abandoned abandoned the rest of the group and left them to their own devices. Um, I would also add, on our way in, we also saw signs of Praxis, the ghoul king. Oh, yeah. It was another season one enemy. Yeah, which was interesting because even Argencia seemed to be taken back by that. And she did note that recently uh, a new kind of undead, these ghouls, uh, who were kind of intelligent and also like culty for lack of a better term um had started like popping up in the mists and they made some comment about how they didn't think this was the right place so the ghouls also seem to be searching for something but uh yeah so nook and nara got trapped in argencia ran off and so the rest of the party i it at least took me a minute to Remember that, oh, no, Argencia didn't give us the bands that would keep us together. She was just straight up abandoning us. Uh, the rest of the party left with her. Uh, th- to be fair, they, they left because I kind of um, prompted them that that might yeah. be a good idea to leave. Yeah. Um, I One of the only problems when you only play every other week is sometimes you forget little details that might turn out to be a big deal such as we are wearing bracelets that force us together and when a couple of us are trapped in an impossible situation we can just walk away and they'll poof out of it automatically so Nok and nara i think both forgot about that nara had received a band as well yeah she received a band from nail mm-hmm. um basically when i the dm realized that nara the one player without one of these bands was getting put into the was was going to be entering the well of bones it's like okay we're going to need to take care of that really quick mm-hmm. but uh wow note was basically stewing in a cell all by himself in the well of bones he also found a copy of argencia's exact armor sort of hinting that she's in a time loop or she's in this sort of immortal curse revival situation but uh eventually we teleported out Noke confronted her about the armor which she did not take well but we made our way to Morfinzi which is one of the human outposts where uh we were supposed to learn about Dr. Worm and we also met the scientist Jorn Horstman who has big evil mad scientist war criminal vibes to him. Yeah, oh yeah, he's he's another shady shady person. Not as um you know, both Yorn and Argencia 
they are bad people. Mm-hmm. However, you know, they both believe that what they are doing is for the greater good. It, it's definitely a lot of ends justify the means, but also you're being pretty mean and causing a lot of endings. Yeah, big big lawful evil vibes. Yeah, like Bjorn basically has dozens of test subjects underground that we only got hints of and that was when the uh the party was like uh he's he's really pushing that we stay here for the night and he mentioned that dr worm did pass through here and left this crystal object outside uh let's let's try and uh find a way to get out of here so we don't get locked in and tortured and so uh Noke had a brilliant plan to pretend that they needed to be outside to worship the night as part of their religion and it was enough to pique Bjorn's curiosity so that they were able to get out uh do a ritual to learn about the uh pin-shaped crystal object and they found that uh oh all they needed to do was pull it out. Now, when you say that there's this pin-like crystal object, it's it's not really a pin. It's the size of a javelin. It's this like long, um, you know, rod, so to speak. I'm I'm just imagining like a giant javelin-sized pushpin with like something the size of a volleyball at the end. Um, I didn't really consider it having some sort of end on it. Um, but sure, why not? You know? It's canon now. That's the joy of Dungeons and Dragons. It exists in each person's mind separately and yet together. But now it's canon. It's got an orb. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next one definitely will. Um, so Dr. Worm, when he had been passing through Falcovnia, and we still don't know how he got there or where he went. He left behind this large javelin that when he like first like appeared in the middle of Morfenzi, um, they found him with this holding this javelin and the javelin, this planar pin was actually embedded in the ground already. And so the players pulled it out and that seemed to uncouple Falcovnia from the Outlands and the players found themselves in the Outlands once again, but with a couple of extra guests. Not only did Nara join them, they were also joined by Argencia and Bjorn Horseman. And now I do have something that I wanted to get some clarity on. Yeah. Because I feel like it was mentioned that Horseman had actively tortured Dr. Worm for information. No. No? No. No. The, um... He, I, I, I can say uh, that Bjorn Horseman was disappointed uh, that Dr. Worm did not stay longer. Um, now, we don't know what Horseman's intentions for Dr. Worm was, um, but Dr. Worm actually seemed to seek out Bjorn Horseman and kind of grilled him for information. He actually seemed to know what he was looking for or who mm. he was looking for. He wasn't interested in the leader of Falcovnia. He was interested in this mad scientist guy and uh, kind of asked him questions about the nature of Falcovnia, how big it was, um, how long they thought they had been there, um, kind of asking these um, very existential questions about this horrific land that the uh, horsemen and Argencia and their, their fellow members of the Order of the Talon. Uh, basically just asking all these strange questions. They they kind of exchanged a little bit of information. Dr. Worm gave him some um, uh, scientific advice, some arcane knowledge. And Bjorn Horseman, meanwhile, maybe uh, gave him some uh, additional information uh, as well uh, that might have helped towards uh, whatever purpose Dr. Worm is traveling through uh ravenloft for okay i i'm not entirely sure then where i came up with the 
vision that uh, Horseman had just straight up tortured Dr. Worm for information when he showed up there. Because Vion Horseman is a really creepy dude, that's why. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, and so when they got pulled in, Nope did kind of want to murder both of them, but uh, the rest of the Outwatch showed up and nobody else in the party was really in support of it. Uh, and Argencia, who has ties to the royal family of the Red Kingdom and who, due to uh, shenanigans, may actually be the rightful heir, survived and was not murdered by Nope. Yep. So Argencia and Horseman went into uh, Outwatch custody and the players were immediately given their next mission. The crystal, this planar pin that Dr. Worm fashioned, and like I said, it resembles this javelin. It has runes etched onto it. Um, it has its origins, or at least the material that it's made out of, this black crystal. It is also known as Shardlin, and there's only one place in the Outlands which Shardlin is found at, and it's a place known as the Sawblade Labyrinth. Located in the Gush Hills, which is a region that the most of the players are pretty familiar with. It was in Campaign 1, this kind of um, very hot area filled with lots of geysers and lots of hot springs. And at the center of it was a place known as Mount Geyser, uh, which is where a elemental Prince of Fire slept, Imix. Uh, and Imix had been resting there for thousands of years due to his injuries during the first Faerun War in ancient times. And uh, in order to retrieve Imix and bring him back home, a group of fire newts had actually traveled from the elemental plane of fire and had taken up residence in the Gush Hills and were actually mining to where Imix slept. Uh, another just quick question. Yes. The Sawblade Labyrinth, mm-hmm. why does it have that name? Well, because it's very evocative. Well, it's because from a distance, the uh, these these black crystals they kind of jut out out of the top of a hill, and it looks like a ridge with uh, you know, uh, it looks like a saw blade. The black crystals, the formations of black crystals, um, actually resemble like a saw blade from a distance. Okay. No, that that is good to know because there was the uh the blade trap area uh from campaign one, uh the labyrinth of blades. Oh, you you're you're referring to the gauntlet of blades, yes. The gauntlet of blades, which actually was oh no, this place is just shock full of choppy boys. Yeah, no, that 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 place was literally um the temple of the Holy Grail from the Last Crusade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, this this is more of like, oh yeah, that's the devil's armchair, because it looks like an armchair that a big old man could sit in. Yeah, no, that's exactly exactly what it was. Originally it was called Sawblade Maid, uh excuse me, Sawblade Maze mm-hmm. in the uh you know, in my campaign notes for campaign one, but I had to change it after a uh group of foolish adventurers ventured into a place known as the Wicker Maze. And then everyone really did not want to go into mazes anymore so i had to come up with an alternative name oops all mazes campaign yeah um so artists recognized that the uh, material for this planar pin was actually taken from the saw blade labyrinth and so he told the party to go and investigate it uh now the saw blade labyrinth was actually visited by uh one of the parties in campaign one uh but this is the first time that this group of players had ever visited there now, some things had changed over the last five years. Um, and things between the Fire Newts, who were always kind of presented as this we will leave you alone if you leave us alone sort of uh, faction, uh, things had deteriorated a bit. And the party learned that Imix, the entity that you know seemed to be responsible for all this heat in the Gush Hills, well, he was about to awaken. Uh, five years ago, and his awakening would have wrought untold destruction onto the Outlands. And so the Outwatch came up with a solution. During Campaign 1, 
the uh, one of the three parties actually came into possession of a vessel that could actually contain Imix and uh, allow them to transport him into the elemental plane of fire. They used that vessel to contain Imix, but while trying to transport him to the elemental plane of fire, that vessel was stolen from them. Now, they didn't really know who. They received a rough description, our current party, and all they know was it was a man who was able to fly. Um, he had uh, a great bushy beard. He had a long beard, and um, it always seemed that wind was blowing around him, which, curiously enough, is a trait that Drulinor also possesses, as he is an air genasi from the elemental plane of air. Also, specifically, it was stolen under the wash of the faithful, one of my characters from last season. Yes, I just said that to annoy you. Oh, no, no, I I think it's 100% because the faithful loves getting fire-related items. It is canon. I mean, oh, the faithful, it was the one mission that the faithful was ever put in charge of. Yep. But no, you didn't know. I mean, that's that's 100% on brand for a Warforged who fell off an, a uh, spell-jamming cruise ship and still believes he is on that ship to this day. Yeah. Anyways, so now knowing that the Gush Hills is hostile territory for the Outwatch, the players made their way to a Fire Newt village where Nail Hammer, who was still accompanying the party, um, he said that he could probably um, make sure that the Fire Newts would leave them alone. So they entered this Fire Newt village, but they discovered only Fire Newt skeletons. As they investigated further, they noticed that there were bits and bobs of, you know, Outwatch uniforms outwatch weapons that had been like scattered about almost as if someone had made a very conspicuous attempt to frame the outwatch for whatever happened to this fire newt village eventually the party discovered something very disturbing while investigating um one of the um dwellings that the fire newts lived in uh, Fleek discovered a creature uh, rummaging through some cloth, like some clothing. This creature had four legs, but no head and no body. It was four legs attached to a brain, an intellect devourer. The party then started to fight several intellect devourers, one of which actually had entered the body of a fire newt. After a couple of very close calls, with Drulinor in particular almost getting taken over by one of these intellect devourers, which would have ended with his death if that had succeeded, uh, the players managed to fight off these strange creatures and kill the fire newt possessed by an intellect devourer. Now, Luke, you as a veteran D&D player know mm -hmm. what intellect devourers mean. Uh, yeah, intellect devourers are often used by mind flayers to uh, act as sort of forward agents infiltrating into different populations because there's no way to tell if someone has an intellect devourer in them unless you essentially kill them or get incredibly lucky. Yeah, and there's only one real hive of mind flayers that have ties to the outlands and that is the shadow court mm -hmm. so the question is why is the shadow court attempting to turn the fire newts against the outwatch why are they trying to escalate hostilities and what does dr worm have to do with all of this i mean i i have better ideas but that's just because i'm aware of what jameson said his uh <laughs> character goals were well and uh maybe maybe uh we'll we'll dig more into that in a in another episode mm -hmm. but for now let's turn to lore you should know yeah about 
Yeah, so uh, one of the things that we'd like to do for this season of the Outlands is kind of, um, we have a extensive uh, wiki that we kind of keep track of not only the individual missions, but we also fill it with kind of the history and backstory of some of these places. It's a way for players who are interested to kind of like dig a little deeper into the world, while the players who are just there to roll dice and kill things can just do that. So Falcovnia, in our campaign, for those of you who are familiar with Dungeons & Dragons lore, they you, you probably know that Falcovnia is a part of Ravenloft. It is an actual canonical part of Ravenloft. Um, it has gone through a couple of changes. Originally, Falcovnia uh, was ruled by a man named uh, Vlad Drakoff, or Drakoff um, who is basically Vlad the Impaler. And the entire his entire shtick was he was this military conqueror who was very happy to impale you and was sent to Ravenloft because of that. In fifth edition, when they redid Ravenloft, they changed Falcovnia's history and they turned it into the zombie apocalypse style setting that uh, the players got a taste of. So I took that, Falcovnia, and we kind of uh, changed the origin story of it a little bit. Um, in our version of Falcovnia, it was originally a city-state known as uh, Lekar. Now, Lekar was um, located in the area, in one of the parts of the what would eventually become known as the Red Kingdom. Uh, a few hundred years before the start of this campaign, the Red Kingdom um, was basically a bunch of different city-states and countries and was all united under one banner and kind of a um, like Holy Roman Empire type thing, which, you know, still stands today in our campaign. As the Red Kingdom was kind of consolidating its power, um, Lakar kind of um, stood to be a problem for uh, the, the Red Kingdom as the Red Kingdom was home to this very infamous, uh, you know, military corps, uh, a group known as the Order of the Talons. Um, now, the Order of the Talons was led by this powerful, brilliant military strategist known as uh, Vladeska Drakov. Knowing that while they had the numbers advantage over the Order of the Talons, any sort of fight with them would lead to just a horrific loss of life. Um, the king of the Red Kingdom decided to appeal to a, um, you know, try decide to turn to a different method of conquest. He decided to pay the leaders of Lekar off. Now, the ruling family of Lekar was known as the Yalo family, and Argencia Yalo was actually um, the daughter of uh, the, the, the leaders of Lekar. Um, and um, was technically royalty. And so the Red Kingdom basically opened up its coffers and um, they had a treaty in place. Uh, the Yalos would become royalty of the Red Kingdom. They would uh, technically have a claim to the throne, uh, kind of far down the line of succession. But, you know, um, eventually, you know, maybe one of their successors would marry into the Red family or if the Red family were to ever disappear, you know, the, the Yellow family, the Yellow family would have a claim on the throne. And the Order of the Talons and uh, uh, their leader, Vladeska Drakov, they didn't like that agreement at all. When they realized that, you know, their, their rulers were going to sell out and that they would be denied the chance of glorious battle and to, to see their foes slaughtered on the battlefield... They decided, well, you can't have a treaty if you're not alive. And so they went and proceeded to systematically murder the population of Lakar. When the Red Kingdom's armies arrived the next day to sign this treaty, they were met with a horrific sight. The city of Lakar itself was gone. There was only a large pile of corpses that remained the, the population of the city the order of the talons though and the city itself had disappeared never to be seen again it was a strange mystery but you know 
not the strangest thing in a world where dragons and gods and you know reality eating monsters all live and so lakar was just lost as a strange footnote of history until a group of adventurers stumbled onto uh, a place now known as Falkovnia, a place where the dead go to get their revenge on the Order of the Talons, and where the Order of the Talons, those who participated in this bloody massacre, would never know true rest and true relief. They would be systematically, one by one, overwhelmed by the living dead and then when the last of them died the cycle would start all over again with only this haunting sensation that they had done it again and this was not the first time that they'd have to live this horror now Argencia Argencia Yalo the heir to Lekar that tree still stands and suddenly this this warrior who not only murdered her her people but has also been subjected to a endless cycle of losing to a foe that cannot be killed a foe that is already dead and has had to live that over and over and over again and when she arrived back in the material plane when she came back to the outlands she was all of those lifetimes of death all hit her all at once. Argencia, she technically has a claim to the Red Kingdom's throne. She might have an even better claim than the current queen, Bravella Red herself, because Argencia technically is much older. She predates Bravella by hundreds of years. If some sort of faction wanted to try to divide the Red Kingdom or create unrest, create a second uh, succession crisis in just a few short years, Argencia certainly would be a pawn to use in those plans. The other question that comes out of Falcovnia, something that the players didn't have to deal with is whatever happened to Vladeska Drakov? Where is the leader of the Order of the Talons? And what happens when she discovers that her chief scientist and one of her loyal soldiers has totally vanished? Can she get out of Falkovnia? Would she want to get out of Falkovnia? Would she even remember... Argencia and Vjorn Horseman the next time that she is subjected to the endless cycle of death and more death? It's a curious question and one that one that we might not find the answer to. Also, I mean, we have the question of, well, if you've taken them out and a new loop starts, do new ones get created of Horseman and Argencia? Well, there's only one way to find that, uh, find out the answer to that question. I mean, there's a few ways, but, you know, we're never going to go back to there, not to that specific realm. I don't think so. We're done there. No, hopefully you don't. Well, that's all we got for this episode of Tales from the Outlands. Uh, we appreciate you listening. Um, thank you uh, for, for coming back for season two. Or joining in season two yeah no we we will be doing a uh if if you're listening to this you probably were hooked in by the big push that we did on social media um so anyways thank you for listening so much um if you want to support this podcast uh you can just leave us a five-star review on itunes spotify or wherever you can listen to your podcasts um you know, those help us get a little bit more visible when people search for D&D podcasts. We start popping up in those. Um, Luke, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at, at Coltreg, that's K-O-L-T-R-E-G, or at LukeHair, L-U-K-E-H-E-R-R.com. I am also currently running the 
RPG Pals Club podcast, which is the Waterdeep Dragon Heist uh, podcast that I've been running, where it's been running so long that currently the party is split between Sigil and then two domains of dread. It's great. It's wonderful. Uh, I am also doing a Fallout Columbus season of the Established Property Playhouse podcast. And then there's older stuff that I've done, but nothing else is active right now. Uh, follow me on Twitter and see my good opinions and other stuff I share. Christian, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Seahoffer, Seabus. Uh, you can find my writing about Dungeons and Dragons. I mostly cover the news, but recently I wrote a review of the Wild Beyond the Witchlight, which is the new D&D adventure that uh, will be coming out here very shortly from Wizards of the Coast. Um, you can find all of those sort of writings at comicbook.com, which is a CBS-owned company. Well, that's all we have for this uh, episode. So until next time, keep adventuring. Don't call it a comeback.